altar to biblical history. And what I read was message six, and that was last week. I almost started subjecting you to last week's sermon. Message seven. I thought we were finished, but we were not finished. Um, the title of this week's message in the series of Altered, a Biblical History, Message 7, is The Curse of Careless Worship. So, Pastor, how in the world did you come up with that? Well, I'm going to show you. I don't like to just blurt things out. I, I like to be able to let the people know that have uh, submitted themselves to this ministry that we come up with what we come up with out of the Bible. It's Bible. It's a Bible phrase, all right? Uh, before we get started, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to read a few passages from Malachi chapter 1, but I want to tell you a story before we get started. No matter what you hear out there in the world, what's going on, you've got good people, you've got bad people in every profession on this planet, even in the ministry, it doesn't matter, whether it's police officers or preachers or whatever, there's good, bad, and ugly, Amen. But I, I stand here before you today humbly telling you that God had his hand on me in my years in law enforcement and made me to be the law enforcement officer that I was, all right? And so it started in my uh, upbringing where basically my parents taught me that when you meet someone, you hand them X amount of respect up front because that's what you do to them, no matter who they are. And they said, you stick your hand out and you shake their hand and you never assume that they know who you are. You say your name. Hi, I'm Carl. Even if I, even if I know they know me, if I'm, you know, haven't met them very many times, especially even if I think they should know my name, I don't assume they know my name. Out of respect for them, I say my name. Does that make sense to you? From there, they can either tear down that respect or build on it. But my parents taught me, let that be their problem, their choice. Don't let it become your problem. That's what mom and dad instilled in me in so many words. Now, why, why did I say that to you? I, I, I was reminded by God while I was putting this together, while God was giving this to me. I can't take credit for this. Um, I went to the academy in Alaska. I've been to more than one police academy in my lifetime. The one in Alaska was the toughest one I've ever been to. And I had the privilege and the honor of going back there as a guest instructor many times. Um, I was honored to do that. The very first lesson I ever learned at the academy in Alaska was taught by the commander of the academy. And it was called Excellence in Law Enforcement. And I can't remember all the details of it. But there are principles that were instilled in me in that class that I use to approach every subject in my life. The commander began to ask us how many of us had had, you know, a little bit of law enforcement experience or how many of us felt like that we were, we're pretty well prepared to go wear a badge and carry a gun and go enforce the laws of the land. And there were a number of us. I even had experience. We pretty much felt that we're pretty, some of us felt like we were pretty ready. We were young, okay, but we thought we were pretty ready. Now, some of you have heard these principles before and used them in your life, and that's a good thing. You need to learn them. He said, I'm going to explain something to you today. The very first lesson that we're going to teach you is that all of you are incompetent. <laughs> Every one of you are incompetent, but you don't know that you're incompetent. 
You don't have any idea what you don't know yet. So you are unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> I thought, wow, what a welcome to the police academy. I'm being told I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I don't know. Well, he was absolutely right. He said, if you pay attention to what we're going to teach you, you'll move one day from being unconsciously incompetent. You'll start waking up in the morning and getting ready for your day, and you're going to know some things. But you don't know you know some things yet. So you start out unconsciously incompetent. You move to unconsciously. You're going to know how to get the right thing done. He said it's called being in the right place at the right time wearing the right clothes. You're prepared. You've got your equipment. You're ready to go. So when you graduate, our goal is to have you compass, uh, 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 consciously competent. You know what to do, and you know how to do it. All right? Now, think about that with me as it applies to worship. Is it possible that the church in America is unconsciously incompetent when it comes to worship? We don't know what we're doing, and we don't know how to get it done right. You know, we don't know what we're doing, but we're not quite aware that we don't know what we're doing. You know what I'm saying? How many of you know that there is so much about worship for us to learn from the Holy Spirit that we're in the starting gate, really? We're just in the starting gate. And we've seen it run the gambit in, 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 even in our own country and our own history, going back all the way to the early 1900s and, and before that. You know, it was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this nation in the early 1900s. Did you know that? It's where a lot of Pentecostal churches in this country were born out of that revival. And you know where it, it came from? It came from a revival that broke out in, in Europe, in England, and moved to America, uh, California to be exact. Do we remember? Right? And there were all kinds of things that went on in the name of worship, and some of it was good and some of it wasn't good. Just like today. Just like today. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to teach us about worship. Now, why are we say, well, Brother Dennis, I thought this was a series on the altar. Well, what have we learned in the last couple of messages? You cannot teach on the altar without it coming back full circle to worship. To worship, right? So that's where we are today. And the title of this message is The Curse of Careless Worship. This is the problem with everything that we learn from God, it's not okay to remain ignorant. It's not okay to remain uninformed or untaught, unlearned, uneducated in the things of God. That isn't just, you can't leave well, well enough alone. You know, I'm okay. I don't feel bad. Uh, you know, life's good. No, no, no. Life can be so much better when God's got his finger on your pulse. Matter of fact, when God is the pulse. Amen? All right, so Malachi chapter 1, we're going to refer back to some of the earlier passages of Scripture, but i got to move to 6 right now. Uh, we're technically going to read Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father. Have you ever corrected a child? You told them what was wrong, only to have them throw back at you. When did I do that? <laughs> When, when did I do this thing you're accusing me of? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God now speaking to the prophet. 
He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Doesn't that sound like a child? A pushing back. God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. In other words, it's okay to do it wrong at the altar. It's okay. It's no big deal. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, stop right there for a minute. Do you remember in Leviticus where, you know, it was laid down how you were to approach the altar, how you could sacrifice or whatever? Man, it was great in a way. Jesus had not yet died on the cross for the sins of the people, but yet God made a way for them to be able to continue in fellowship with him. If you just do these things, it will not cleanse you of your sin, but it will cover your sin so that you and I can still continue to fellowship, have a relationship, because it's always has been and always will be, whether it's the altar or worship, it's about relationship. It's about relationship. All right. What they had to do was, it didn't matter how messed up their lives were, if they wanted to get right with God, they went to their flock and they pulled out a lamb. And what, what did they need to do? They needed to make sure that the lamb was as perfect as it could be, being a lamb in this world. You didn't take a lamb with a broken leg. You didn't take a blind lamb. You didn't take a maimed lamb. As a matter of fact, you didn't take a lamb that had any other color in it but white. The whiter the better, right? And so this sinful man or woman would approach the temple and bring this lamb. And the priest would receive the lamb and not even bother to look up at the human being. He went to examining the lamb. And if the lamb met the criteria... The sacrifice would be made and that person's sins would be covered. Now you get to where it's in the age of Malachi and God speaking through the prophet and telling them how many different ways they can get it wrong. All right, watch this with me. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? He said... You feed it to the leader, the physical leader of your area. Do you think he's going to accept that? And if that man's not going to accept that, why would God accept it? Amen? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that, you're, uh, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you. One second here. Says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Have you ever felt like that your worship wasn't going anywhere? It just wasn't going anywhere. Wasn't effective. God wasn't receiving it. Yeah, I think we all have it sometime or another. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. 
But you say, what a weariness, weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now let, let's get some things cleared up here. Things are so much greater in the church age than they were in the Old Testament. Not only you can bring your messed up life to the altar today and give all that over to God and God will receive it. He will cleanse you and he will heal you. We have that great thing. But there's something to be said about the type of worship we bring to that altar. God is not going to take just any of that from you. He's not going to receive just any of that. Do you know what that kind of worship is that touches the heart of God? It causes God. You ever you heard the phrase, uh, God inhabits the praises of his people? It means God nestles down and makes himself at home in the praises of his people. That's not polluted worship. That's the kind he wants. That's the kind God is drawn to. Amen? So let's focus for a few minutes on this. The key problem was the careless worship of the priests of Israel. You recall that the priests were despising the name of God by the way they handled the sacrifices in the temple. They were not doing it by the word of God. So let's take note of a few of these examples. Look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And then verses 13 and 14. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence. That's stolen animals. There were people who didn't want to give from their own flock. They'd steal from someone else's flock and make that an offering to God. How well do you think that went over? Verse 13 again. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king. I like other verses just says, for I am the great king. Amen. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So the priests are offering stolen animals and animals that are lame, animals that are sick. And the Lord says in verse 13, it's unacceptable. It is in fact a curse according to verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. So can you see clearly why it is that in this service we must deal with the curse of careless worship? In the time we have left, let's ponder the origin of careless worship, the essence of careless worship, and the opposite of careless worship. First of all, the origin of careless worship. Malachi leaves us in no doubt about the origin of careless worship. It is the failure to see and feel the greatness of God. Let me read that again. It is a failure to see and feel the greatness of God. He makes this clear in at least two ways. Number one, 
Because, you, you know, it's like the kids were asking me, what, what are we preaching from today, Pastor? I said, the whole first chapter of Malachi, really. Because the verses leading up to 6 through 14 are very important too, and, and I'm going to refer back and forth a little bit. He makes this clear in at least two ways. One, failing to see the greatness of God's sovereign love. And what, what a trend we have here. Julia, when she came to us and she started leading worship with us, we noticed right away she has a penchant for songs that just worship God for being God. And, and we've loved it. We've enjoyed it. Amen? We've enjoyed it. It doesn't mean we can't sing other songs because we do. We are appreciative. Amen? But if we fail to worship God for who he is first, we'll fail in our worship of any other kind. All right? Failing to see the greatness of God's sovereign love. First, by focusing our attention on the greatness of his sovereign love and the greatness of his majestic fatherhood. How many times have you heard me say, Father, thank you for letting us call you Father. Thank you for making a way. And, and listen, yes, we are adopted into the family, but not in the way you think about people who are adopted into families today. Go into court and, and the court approves and you get their name because the court said no. God has provided the power through his spirit for us to become the children of God. Which is better than the way children are adopted in this world. It's better. You're not just given a name. You're given sonship. You, you become a child of the king. Amen? I like that. That's great. First, by focusing our attention on the greatness of his sovereign love and the greatness of his majestic fatherhood. The very first thing God says in the book. If you go, go to the early part of the chapter, what does it say? Early on, God puts this across. Verse 2 says... I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the first thing God says through the prophet. He doesn't say, I've been good to you. I have provided for you. I have done this for you. I have done, no. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And that's the principle that God lays out through the prophet that makes the whole message of chapter 1 in Malachi be established. All right? So, they respond in their careless, off-handed way. How have you loved us? That's in verse 2. That's just in verse 2. How have you loved us? Sarcastically. How have you loved us? And that's the way they're responding to the prophet that God's using to speak through. And what does God say? He does not say, I forgave you. I cared for you. I've been patient with you. I provided for you. And all of that is true, isn't it? All of that was true. He'd done all those things. But what does God call attention to for this careless people? He speaks these ominous words. And you've got to pay attention to this or you're going to miss this. He says to him, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. We've already addressed this subject, but we've got to come back to it. Because listen, this is important. We know that God chose Jacob because God knows the future. And he knew what was in Jacob's heart. And he knew what was in Esau's heart. And he rejected Esau's heart and he embraced Jacob's. Jacob didn't do anything to earn it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jacob didn't do anything. And really, really Esau had not done anything evil because God made that choice while they were still in the womb. Because he knew the future. Now, why is that important? Let's follow. 
What we saw, and we saw this a few weeks ago, what that meant, it meant that God's love for Israel, which equals Jacob, right? Listen to this word. It's an electing love. God's love is an elective love. How do we know? Why do we love God? Somebody tell me. Why should we love God? Because he first loved us. He elected. He chose to love us before we knew he really existed. Before we even knew he existed, he chose to love us, right? So God chose Jacob, not Israel. And if you study the word of God, you're going to know what I'm about to say. You'll, you'll understand this. Go look it up. Go look up Edom. Because God chose between Israel and Edom. Had Edom done anything to say to God, eh, we don't know. God chose Israel because he's, his love is elective. He chooses to love. And he loves us, amen? He loves us. And Edom was not God's choice, right? So, and his electing love is free and it's unconditional. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, didn't Esau have as much natural claim on God's love as Jacob did? He had as much natural claim, didn't he? Yet God says, I chose you to Jacob. I chose you. And his electing love, it's free, it's unconditional. In other words, in dealing with the problem of careless worship, God unfolds the nature of his love, not first as something warm and gentle and kind and tender. What was it like for you when you first met God? Wasn't it a strange and wonderful experience? Did you understand about everything about him right out of the chute? I'm going to read this again. In other words, in dealing with the problem of careless worship, God unfolds the nature of his love, not first as something warm and gentle and kind and tender, but as something awesome and strange and fearful in its electing, electing freedom. You know, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I've told you this in the last year many times. We can't second guess God. We can't tell him what to do. Amen? We can't, right? Why? Because it's all about him. We're just beneficiaries of this great love that he has. And we need to thank God every day that he chose to love us. Amen? I had a guy ask me one time, he said, you're scaring me. What if God uh, chose not to love me? I said, don't talk to God like that. Talk to God like you're loved. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, talk to, to God like you're embraced. Amen? There, you know, and, and you've got to understand that the way the altar works today is so much better for us. It's so much better for us. We live in the age of grace, but we still cannot offer up to God anything less than our best when it comes to worship. Nothing less than our best. There is in God's love a great and awesome sovereignty. And that's what God draws attention to first. Then he does the, where's my honor? God could again draw attention to the gentle and tender examples of his fatherhood. But he does hear just what he did in the case of his love. He focuses attention on the majesty of his fatherhood and asks not, he, notice he didn't say, where is your affection? That's not what he said. He said, where is my honor? Do you understand you know, it's not all feely, touchy, lovey with God. God's God. If you don't know for a minute that God is the sovereign being over our lives, you're missing an important point. 
You're missing an important point. It comes from the failure to feel the greatness of God's sovereign love and the greatness of his majestic fatherhood. It is greatness in particular that is crucial when worship is at stake. Now listen to me. Maybe this isn't a good illustration. I don't know, but I'm going to give it to you. You might have a horse like Flicka or Fury or Black Beauty or a dog like Ren 1010 or Lassie or Benji that saves your life a hundred times. You might have a deep affection for the animal and weep when he dies, but you are never tempted to bow down and worship it. Give you another example. The closest bond of friendship and love and unity might develop, but you never think of worshiping your friend. Why? Because one indispensable element in worship is greatness. We worship him because of who he is. His greatness, amen, or majesty or grandeur. None of those heroes, none of those dogs, cats, I don't care what it is, or friends, never will have the greatness and the grandeur of our Father or the kind of love he gives. So when careless worship is the issue, God focuses attention not first on the gentleness of his love or the tenderness of his fatherhood, but on the sovereign freedom of his love and the majesty of his fatherhood. And I'm telling you right now, if every person who met Jesus Christ at first met him at that door, at that place where they were saved and learned this lesson first and learned what a great provider he was later, they'd be more spiritually healthy in the long run. Why? Because we can become dependent upon Father because of what he does for us. And you can forget about your worship being valuable then. We must focus on his greatness first. Who he is. Verses 10 through 14 are given as the reason God rejects careless worship. You notice in verse 11 it's connected to verse 10. It just flows back and forth. For from the rising of the sun to its setting my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered in my name. To my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What does it say there about him providing anything for us? It's all about him. It is all about him. Amen? Exactly the same logic turns up in the connection between verses 13 and 14 where it says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words... Careless worship is unacceptable because it, is, uh, it utterly fails to come to terms with God's greatness. In other words, careless worship is unacceptable because it utterly fails to come to terms with God's greatness. Just him being who he is. Amen? So the origin of careless worship is a failure to see or feel the greatness of God. But how does this cause careless worship? Malachi answers this question. And, and I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to back it up with the word. If I were a lawyer in a court of law, and I could just get the judge and the jury and the people, first of all, to take the word of God by faith, because that's what we're supposed to do, I can convince them what's in the word. Listen to this. Malachi's answer is, so, but how does this cause careless worship? It makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. 
Did you hear that? It makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become more exciting. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become more exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a street light. If you never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. If you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with the world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Say, so, Brother Dennis, so what you're saying is that, you know, the greatness of God, recognizing the greatness of God is not optional. That's absolutely right. It's not optional. It's dangerous not to hear what I'm saying today and make up your heart and mind. And it's okay to say to God, I don't know how to do this. Guess what? He's the only one that can make these changes in your life because of his greatness. And, and he's got, he is the ultimate father's heart. Amen? So if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with the world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. I got this from verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. Even in this room, is there anyone here that was tempted to just stay home today? Now, yeah, you know, I mean, now I, I'll be honest with you. I, I love coming here and being with you so much. And I've got this thing in me that God's given me. I've got to give it away. You know, I mean, there's just no, no way I would have stayed home today. But that's just me because of God's word, not me because of me, right? I can be lazy if I want to be lazy. If I make up my mind to be lazy, I can show off. <laughs> All right? Now watch. All right. So they're bored with God. Their basic attitude is, what a weariness this is. It says, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Wow. So I wrote. They're bored with God. Their basic attitude toward worship. What awareness this is. And when you become so blind that the maker of galaxies and the ruler of nations and knower of all mysteries and lover of our souls becomes boring, then only one thing is left. The love of the world. This is the only thing left. The love of the world. For the heart is always restless. It must have its treasure. That's a funny thing about the heart. Heart's going to have treasure. Just depends on what kind of treasure it's going to have. Right? For the heart is always restless. It must have its treasure. If not in heaven, then on earth. And so when it's time to bring sheep from the flock to sacrifice, what do you bring? You bring the sheep with disease and broken legs. Or you steal a sheep to bring. Why? It's obvious. The good sheep sell better. That, that was the bottom line. I can make more money off of the sheep. I can make money off the sheep if I sell it. It's, it's good looking. Someone else could use it for worship, and I'll get the money by selling the lamb. So there it is. The origin of careless worship is a failure to see and feel the greatness of God. It makes a difference in everything we do. It changes the motivation in what we do and why we do it. And so, God becomes boring and the world becomes exciting. And worship, well, there may be some social usefulness in keeping up a front of religion. But oh, how the heart beats then fast for the world.
Now we turn to the question, what is the essence of careless worship? There's only one point under this one. The essence of careless worship is worthless religious activity. It's why, if you ever sat in a church, and you know what? Maybe it's been here before. And what do you know? What's really going on? What's really going on? And people will ask questions like that when there's no life in the church, when there's no family. You understand what I'm saying? The Father doesn't show up. Amen? His greatness is never manifest. You should ask that question in what's going on in this church. Amen? So, look at this with me. Or to be more precise, it's religious activity that illustrates how little a person values God. That's what religious activity is. And, and that's, in a sense, is what verse 10 is about. It says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Well, there's a purpose to that phrase. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, I have no pleasure in you. I need to get back to where I was here. Yeah. He says, Oh, that there were one among you that, who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. There's a little Hebrew word behind the phrase in vain that carries a lot of freight, and, and the word is H-I-N-A-M, Hinam. And you get to see it better in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. It's where David is trying to turn a plague away from the nation of Israel, right? And he learns of a place where he needs to build an altar. And, and here's what it, David's trying to avert a plague. To do so, he needed a place to build an altar to offer sacrifices to God. The threshing floor of Arnah, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, was in the right place. And Arnah offers the threshing floor and animals to David for nothing. Why? Because he loves David. Arnah's a good man. He's wanting to do something nice. Well, if my king wants it, my king can have it, right? And what does David say? No. But I will buy it of you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord. My God, that's Hinnom, which cost me nothing. I will not do this in vain. That's what he's saying, right? In other words, I value God so much. The sovereign freedom of his love and the majesty of his fatherhood are so satisfying to my soul that I cannot bring myself to worship in a way that looks as if I love money more than I love him. Amen? Or that you love anything more than you love him. Say, oh, Brother Dennis, this strikes right to the, the core of my heart. What do I do? Pray. Talk to Father about it. You think that Father, when you approach him and say, look, I understand I'm not getting certain things right. I'm aware of it now and I can't leave it alone. Father, will you help me? What do you think he's going to do? Turn his back on you and not help you? Not hear your cry. He wants to give this to you. He wants to do this for you. So, look, if you're uninformed and uneducated and you don't know how to get done, this part of your life to get done right, let him do it. You got to let him do it anyway. You can't do it. If you were that smart, you know, what would you need God for? I need God to get it right in me. I can't get it right in myself. I need his help. Amen. So, David said, it must cost me something. It must say, 
it must say that he and not the world is his treasure. That's what David's saying. So the essence of careless worship is empty religious activity. It doesn't express, it doesn't express the worth of God. All right? In fact, it expresses that our treasures are on this earth and that what we really love is in the world. Finally, we ask what is the opposite of careless worship? The opposite of careless worship. Point number three. For surely one good answer to the question is that excellence is the opposite of carelessness in worship. But what is excellence? I don't think it's helpful to talk about excellence in the abstract. We've got to get real specific. First, you have to define what the nature of true worship is. And then define excellence in worship as those thoughts and attitudes and words and feelings and forms which most successfully bring us to true worship and adoration of God. It's a mix of all of those things. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. He is subject to all of those emotions. Jesus was subject to all of those emotions. We're subject to all of those emotions and feelings and things, you see. All of those things must be brought to bear. And must, you must be willing to bring those things to the table if you want to truly worship God. I'd put it like this. Here's the next, the next point I want to make. The nature of true worship is worship that does two things. One, it expresses the feeling of God's value and greatness. How many times have we read that today in the Bible? True, the nature of true worship expresses the feeling of God's value and greatness, and it seeks to sustain that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and beauty. My first mentor, I told you about him many times. He was in his 70s, and as a child, he had polio. And he limped in his 70s. When I met him, he limped badly. That was the after effect of having polio when he was a child. And one day, he asked me, he said, what do you think Jesus looks like? He said, I know it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever Jesus looks like, you know, I love him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to love being in his presence. But he said, what do you think he looks like? I said, I, I don't know. I've never really thought much about it. He said, well, when you get older, you will. And guess what? He's right. But I'll never forget his answer when I said, what do you think he looks like? This coming from a frail man who limped, who polio had exacted a terrible price on this man's body. And I can remember it like he's standing here by my side. He said, I think he's the most beautiful the strongest, the most powerful human being that has ever lived. He's beautiful. In the eyes of my mentor, Jesus was beautiful. And guess what? He is. He is. So I know I just made those two points, but I'm going to approach them in another way now. True worship comes from a heart where God is treasured above all human property and praise. True worship comes from a heart where God is treasured above all human property and praise. It aims to inspire the same God-centered passion in the hearts of everybody in every congregation if they're listening to him. Amen? 
The path that has the greatest promise for reaching true worship is the street of conscientious spirituality. You remember what I said in the beginning? No longer unconsciously incompetent. No longer unconsciously competent, but reaching the point of being consciously competent. See, I have not begun to scratch the surface for you surface for you as a pastor of what you've got to do next other than one thing. You've got to go to God. You've got to go to Jesus. You've got to go to an altar and make this the matter, the subject matter primary with God. Talk to him about this. Father, teach me what I need to know about how I can worship you for who you are. And, and, and not just what you do. It's easy isn't it easy to see something in your life that you know God did and, and you'd like to thank him for it? You're grateful, right? Your gratitude for him being God over your gratitude for what he did for you is eminently more important to him than your gratitude for what he does. It, it's, it answers the question, can God do anything? The answer is yes. Do you believe there's a reason why he doesn't do everything we want him to do? Could there be a reason for that? I think so. You know, I don't really have in mind here any particular form of worship. We can worship God many ways. Amen? What I have in mind is worship that really comes from a feeling of, of the greatness of God and that seeks humbly to express and inspire that same intensity for God without the distractions of the world. May the Lord teach us how to truly worship him. May the Lord open our eyes to his greatness. And may he forbid that, that we offer him in the pew or in the pulpit or at our instruments the leftovers of our lives. God, keep us from offering up to you. And sometimes we do it unaware. We offer up God the leftovers of our lives. I will tell you this right now. You know, it, it's not unusual to find people living and breathing and walking and eating and sleeping in this world that doesn't have something in their life they need to give to God. Something that they need God to take away from them. And maybe you've talked to God many, many, many times about that. And you know what? If you need to keep talking to God, keep talking to God about it. Until you're willing to relinquish what he's willing to take from you because he's willing to take it from you. If you've still got it, you've got it for a reason. All right? I'm telling you to go to the Lord and try to worship him and ignore that thing. Ignore that thing. God, God doesn't ignore it. It's keeping you from knowing what true worship is. Now, you've got to ask yourself, really? Is that thing worth that? Is that thing worth that? I'm going to tell you this because I don't hide things from you. I yearn for a time where we come in to have an extra service during the week where we don't do anything but worship him. Right now, it would be wasted time. And now look, you say, Pastor, you're mean. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I'm mean. But I'm talking to me too, all right? I don't mind hurting my feelings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't mind being honest with me. Why should I mind being honest with you? I want us to come together 
when we've started to talk to God about these other things and letting him have, let him take them away and give us a taste of what it's like to truly worship him and have him nestle down by the power of his spirit and make himself at home in our midst. I'm telling you, those are some truly joyful services. And just like in a communion service, which is a worship service, by the way, a worship service where song and praise and adoration is going up to God is when the Holy Spirit falls and someone over here on the right all starts shouting, jumping, and dancing. You say, well, wait a minute. That person came in in a wheelchair, and I'm not joking with you. I've seen these things. Are you hearing me? It'd be different if I had never seen it before. I saw God knock my frail grandmother to the ground, a quiet little Southern Baptist woman. I'm telling you, went to pray for her, boom. Uh, this evangelist went to pray for her, and he barely touched her head. And, and she only weighed 90-something pounds. She was scheduled for cancer surgery the next morning. Our family was going to take her to the hospital and check her in. Boom, she hit the ground, Southern Baptist. And I saw her lips quivering. And for 45 minutes, she laid there, praised God, worshiped God. She got up. We took her home. We went and got her the next morning. We took her to the hospital. Four hours later, a doctor came out and said, look, we're sending her home. We can't find any cancer. There's no cancer in your grandmother. Look, look. And, and in, a, in a worship service where nobody lays hands on anybody and people start getting healed, that's when the Holy Spirit's feeling right at home. All right? And, and when he does it, you got you to gotta keep a proper perspective. You don't go out and start advertising. You know what's happening at Life Spring Bible Church? Do you know what? You won't have to do that. When the Holy Spirit starts moving, uh, the name of Jesus, Jesus gets lifted up, and what did he say? You lift up Jesus, and he will draw all men unto him. You don't need no program. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to formulate a plan. God just does it. How many of you want God to grow the church? Yeah, right? Well, let's start in here. Let's start here first. Do you really want God to bring people to a condemned place? No. Now, listen to me. I will tell you today, I'm not bragging on anybody but God, but I'll tell you, last spring Bible church is heading in a healthy direction. Okay? So don't get, don't get your heart broke. Don't let the devil rush up to you and say, well, your pastor doesn't think much of your church. No, I, I love what God's doing here. You know, we just need to fine-tune these things here a little bit with God, right? There's not, we're not broken. We're not broken. We're just uninformed, and we're getting informed, right? Well, I'm going to let you out a little early today. I'm going to let you breathe a little bit, all right? I don't want to, I've, I've gotten carried away a few sermons <laughs> in this series, but but I'm going to tell you, I love you. I appreciate your patience with us. But did you not hear something important today in this? Somebody have got heard something important here. Let's learn to worship God for his greatness, for who he is. Amen. Always put that first. Then we can sing. We can sing all the songs we want to sing about all the good things he's done for us as long as we never forget the greatness of God, who he is. Amen. And, and, there's, and those Courses, God forbid that we should ever abandon the courses that just say, God, we love you. Thank you for, you know, being God. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for working your plan. Thank you for doing what you do. I mean, you know, it, that, that's, those things are birthed out of his personality, his greatness, and who he is. All right. I'm almost got wound up again. Stand up with me. Let me pray for you. 
Father, I want to thank you once again for the love this caster brought in our hearts by your spirit. I want to thank you for the seed of your word that's been planted in the soil of our hearts. Prayer's gone up. I believe you've been dealing with the soil of our hearts. Father, if people are offended by the word, which I don't believe Life Spring Bible Church is offended by the word. I really don't. Father, I believe that as long as we're sharing truth from your word and set the table with that kind of food and put it on the plate, your people are going to eat it. They're going to enjoy it. I think the most important thing we've learned today, Father, is that we need to love you and worship you and adore you just for being God. Thank you. You're, you're our Father. You, you allowed us to be your children. That's amazing. It's mind-boggling. All of that other gratitude will come birthed out of that, Father, in this church in the future. Thank you, Father, that there are things in our lives that don't belong. Maybe a lamb with a broken leg or a blemish or uh, those things exist. But, Father, we know now all we've got to do is come to you and talk to you about it. Father, when we desire the presence of your greatness in our lives, more than we desire the pleasures of this world, we'll give those things up and you'll take them away. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. I know your word says that in a great house are many vessels, some to honor and some to dishonor. And it talks about if we even find ourselves being a vessel of dishonor, all we got to do is talk to you about it. And you turn vessels of dishonor into vessels of honor every day. Every day. For those vessels that will turn to you and ask you to change us as vessels. Lord, we want to hold the Holy Spirit till it overflows from us. And touches the lives of others around us. And until we grasp hold of the truth of this message today, it won't happen. Father, I pray that we will go to the altars that you've told us to build in our lives. And we'll talk to you about this subject. Get our heart and our mind straight. Teach us so well, Father, that we become consciously competent in our knowledge of what you want to do in our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters, in the lives of Life Spring Bible Church, in the lives of the body of Christ in Anchorage, in Alaska, this country, and throughout this world. Very, I'm very excited, Father. Uh, I'm not alarmed. I'm very excited about what you're doing in this world. You, you haven't left it at the status quo uh, you're moving, you're doing, you're achieving. People are turning to you and asking you for help, Father. I pray in Jesus' name you would touch their lives. Help us, Father, to know what we are to repent of, to turn away from it, to thank you for forgiveness, and you'll hear our prayer and heal our land. Thank you for killing, then, the coronavirus, we pray in Jesus' name. Watch over us as we leave from this place to keep us safe. Bring us together again at the appointed time. Let everyone in this room know they're loved and cared for, Father, in a great way. You've given these people a pastor and a pastor's wife that loves them, Father. And we know we're loved and we know the people pray for us every day. And let the people know they're being prayed for every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Fellowship together before you leave here.